Welcome to the show. Our special guest on this episode is Greg Rays. He actually hosted a group call for our Patreon members who asked him in more detail about how to start an app and how they can improve the ones they've already started. So if you want audio and video footage of this awesome call, well, check out Patreon episode number 18. And one last thing before we get started, you might have noticed there's been a lack of sponsors over the past few months. Well, it seems like the Corona world has affected the marketing budgets for companies that used to sponsor podcasts. So I've been focusing more and more on how to help our Patreon members since, you know, they're the ones helping pay the bills around here. So if you're interested in hearing more podcast episodes come out on this very feed, then consider becoming a member. Not only are you going to keep getting awesome episodes, but you'll also get one-on-one -on -one help with me and our previous guests. With our back catalog of Patreon episodes, I can guarantee it pays for itself after the first minute that you become a member. So check the description below if you want to learn more about the benefits of becoming a member and at the same time, helping keep our podcast going. I always tell entrepreneurs that if you're completely comfortable, you've probably waited too long. You need to be a little bit uncomfortable about the decisions that you're making and the leaps that you're making, whether it's... That's some inspiration for future snowboarders. So <laughs> we cover it all on this podcast. It's not just business, Greg. That's right. Well, I'm sure you can draw an analogy on... Actually, here's the analogy to snowboarding. Like when you're starting a business, you're... Even back then, I was like, I know this is a tiny office and I had my eye on the next office that would be bigger and better and greater and could actually accommodate a couple more employees. And I remember these two, I think they were freshmen in college. They came to talk to me and they wanted advice on entrepreneurship and they came to see my tiny little office and they looked at it and they're like, wow, this is amazing. You made it. They left and I had to reflect on that because each step that you make, it's hard. You don't realize the progress that you have made. My name is Greg Rays, and I'm based in the Boston area. I'm 43 years old and been entrepreneur, software guy for a number of years. Built a company called Rays Labs that I sold a couple of years ago and just passionate about startups and entrepreneurship. So you're trying to figure out what your next step is in life, basically? Yeah, probably between ventures. I'm doing a lot of angel investing right now and advising startups. So working with entrepreneurs, helping them kind of make their dreams a reality and starting to think about what my next endeavor might be. Gotcha. If you're investing in companies, it must sound like things went well for your old company if you ended up selling it. Yeah, we had a successful business that we grew and we sold the business in late 2017, which was a great result for everyone. I ended up staying on with the company for a couple of years as the head of innovation. And then late last year, I decided to part ways and start thinking about what's next. So you said your last company was called Raise Labs? Yep. Yeah. So it has your name in it, right? Yep. <laughs> R-A-I-Z. So is that kind of weird to have your last name in a company and now you're no longer part of that company? Well, the company post-acquisition, it kind of changed names. And so it became a division of the acquiring company. And so that was fine. It was a little weird, but I kind of think about there's long history of entrepreneurs that had the company name as incorporated in what it was, Dell Computer being one where Dell wasn't part of that company and Disney's no longer part of Disney. Maybe a little strange at first, but it's been a long time. So you're saying Raised Labs is going to be the next Disney or Dell? 
No, no. I'm just saying that it's not weird for me that I'm no longer at that company. It was kind of my baby. I grew it for 13 years and it was successful. And again, I'm starting to think about what's next. It was just a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I try. We understand you sold your company, that you worked there for a little bit, and now you're off trying to figure out what your next stepping stone is. But can you tell us a little bit more about like what that company was or what your background is? Because I don't think we've understood that part. Sure. So got started in software, studied computer science in college at Tufts University and got a job initially at Microsoft working out of Redmond on the Windows XP operating system. And so I kind of cut my teeth on software and user experience and ended up starting a business around consulting in the software space. So I would help companies with user experience design and building web applications as well. And we were doing that type of consulting right around the time when the iPhone was unveiled. And so in 2008, 2009, when Steve Jobs announced the iPhone and the app store that came along with it, we kind of pivoted the business to focusing on mobile apps. And so we built our very first mobile app that we launched was for a company called Runkeeper. And so they hired us to design and build the mobile app. That was our first product that we developed and designed and ended up being very successful. And so we kind of pivoted our services consulting business to building more apps. And so we work with lots of both local companies in the Boston area, companies like Rulala and Care.com. But then we moved and started doing work for many national brands, Fortune 500 companies. And that's what really led to the growth of the company. We opened a California office in Oakland, grew the team to 70, 80 people. So just to summarize it, make it easy, and then we'll go back in more detail. You worked for Microsoft for three or four years, and then you basically end up starting your own consulting company. And then there, it seems like you're helping people make mobile apps, or is it different types of apps? That's right. We started with general types of applications, but then with the launch of the iPhone, we really switched into focusing on mobile applications. From that, you were just helping other people develop their own mobile apps in the Boston area? That's right. We helped a number of companies develop their mobile apps in the Boston area and then more nationally as well. Okay. Maybe it's best if we start off when in 2001 is basically when you started Razor Labs. Should we talk about that transition from being an employee at Microsoft and then going out on your own? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How old were you when you made that transition? I was probably 23, 24. And so I had left Microsoft. It was one of the lowest points for me because I was actually fired from Microsoft for not necessarily falling in line, which I think is maybe typical for entrepreneurs. We don't necessarily like to do what we're told. We kind of pave our own way. I didn't really fit in at Microsoft, you know, had a larger vision for what I thought software should be. And I think I kind of got in the way. And so it was a little bit of a low point for me. And I kind of started developing some of my own software and kind of doing the startup thing. I started blogging and writing some of my thoughts down. And that's really what kind of led me to start my own company as well. So you told them you wanted to develop Windows 2000 and they're still doing Windows XP. Is that what the deal was? Well, we had launched Windows XP, which was actually a pretty large success. And the team started working on the next operating system, which at the time was what ended up becoming Windows Vista. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you didn't fall in line. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that I was like, this is wrong. The thing about Windows XP that I think made it a success was that there was a lot of grounding in user experience, a lot of vision in terms of what was important for that particular product. And when the team started on Windows Vista, all of that was absent. It was just like, let's ship 
another product and let's throw a bunch of features in it. And so I kind of put up my hand. I was like, we're doing it wrong. We need to stop. We need to reevaluate the vision. And as a 20-something, reporting to people who are, at the time, were significantly more tenured at the company, they didn't want to hear that. I was shown the door, which was okay for me as it ended up being. At the time, it felt really awful, but it ended up being okay. So tell us about that. I mean, was that right after the dot-com crash as well? It was a little after the dot-com crash. So I left Microsoft end of 2001. I still had some money from Microsoft because the company did do well. I did have some stock options. And so I essentially took all that money and that was my kind of startup money to start my software business. And so I was doing some of my own shareware products, my own software products that I built, doing some light consulting and kind of getting my feet wet in that space and learning about entrepreneurship. I never went to business school. I never learned kind of the basics of finance and accounting. I really didn't know some of that. So I was literally in the library reading books on how to do this stuff. And that was part of my time. And part of the time I was trying to hustle and find clients who would listen to my opinion and let me help them with how to do design, how to do user experience. When you worked at Microsoft, was there an office in Boston or did you move back to Boston? Like, can you tell us about the locations here? Yeah, I was living in Seattle. That's where Microsoft was. I'd grown up in the greater Boston area in a suburb called Newton. I'd moved out to Seattle for a number of years. And then after leaving Microsoft, I ended up moving back to the Boston area. Were you able to sleep in Seattle? I was occasionally sleepless in Seattle, but occasionally I got some sleep. What was the work life there at Microsoft? Was everyone hustlers or was it more like a nine to five? It was definitely a lot of work. They hire a lot of folks who are right out of college and you're essentially working all the time. There's no other way to put it. You're surrounded by people who are your age. And so it's a very collegial atmosphere. You're having dinner with everybody who you're also working with. And so you're coming in, you're working all night, you're coding all night, they're bringing in dinner for you and you wake up the next morning and you do it again. So it was a lot of work. It was definitely high energy. And so I enjoyed it. There was a lot of positive things about the Microsoft engineering culture. And actually some of the things that I learned about how to hire some of the best engineers in the world, you know, I carried that forward into the company that I started. I wanted to make sure when I'm starting a business that I'm hiring some of the best people in the world and I'm keeping those standards high. And I think ultimately when starting any types of business, it's really about the people. And so I'm incredibly grateful for Microsoft for teaching me how to hire properly because having a high bar for talent is so critically important. Hopefully that helped. I feel like I came at least a little bit more helpful at the end there. No, I, I do. I think it helps. And like I said, it's like going to see a psychiatrist talking about your problems in life. You're like, we're talking with you about our <laughs> problems in business and startups. So, I mean, when we vocalize it and we talk, something else will enter our brains and, and we're like, okay, yeah, there it is. Nice. Well, I appreciate it, Dr. Rock. You know, I'm still going to get paid, but I realize that if I make a twenty dollars or $30,000 sale, I might only get 15000 me. I wish I had taught, wow, if I had talked to you a year ago, because part of the reason I get suckered into salarying these people, they're like, I have to pay my bills. And I wish I had known about that. I can't believe no one's like ever said that to me because I'm like, that's how I should be structuring everything. So that's awesome. That's exactly what I should have been doing. Do you think getting fired was it like harder? Maybe I don't know if they, you considered them quote unquote friends, but at least it's like a lifestyle where people you're hanging out with. Was that the hardest part? Like having to not be around these people that you had grown up with out of college? 
No, I still keep in touch with a bunch of folks who are ex-Microsofties. Most of them ended up leaving and either starting their own companies or joining in other startups as well. And so friends are friends, you know, work is work. I think when you're young, you equate the two or it's easy to equate the two, but longer term relationships outlast that. Right. But I mean, if they ended up like booting you, I mentioned at the time, if those were the only people you were hanging out with and then you have to go back to Boston, I don't know. You said it was kind of devastating at the time. So I was just trying to figure out if it was just more than losing the job. It was losing that camaraderie, at least temporarily. No, I didn't lose the relationships even there. Like I stayed in touch with a bunch of folks. We'd still go to parties and events and things like that. Well, that's good. My friend circle certainly, they knew I wasn't a bad person. I didn't do anything wrong. And that's kind of like the thing when you're young, if you have a job transition, I'm sure right now a lot of folks are out of work because of what's going on in the economy and it's not your fault. You kind of pick up, you learn from it and you pivot, you figure out what the next thing is. And so when you make this transition, are you excited to go back to Boston? I mean, are you living with your family when you're going to go start your own new business here? I did for a little bit. Yeah. So I came back to Boston. My parents are from the area. So I lived with them for a little bit, got my own condo and got my own place. Microsoft money ran out. And so I actually ended up getting a day job in Boston for a little bit. And that was allowed me to kind of pay the bills, pay the rent, that sort of thing. And then at night, I would continue to work on my startup and continue to work on my software. And so I believe in starting a business as a side hustle that gives you a lot of security. It allows you to have the financial security of having a day job while you're continuing to incubate your idea for whatever your company is. What was your day job? So I was a user experience, user interface architect in a small software company in Massachusetts where I would come in and help them design their software to be easier and friendlier to use. So again, using some of the things I had learned at Microsoft about user experience and user interface design and best practices to apply that to more of an enterprise software product. And that kind of, again, gave me a little bit of financial security and allowed me to continue to incubate my startup. So I think I finally figured out what UX UI means. Does this mean user? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think if I ever knew, but the X, it shouldn't be UEUI. I know it should, right? <laughs> Actually, it's funny. As part of my transition, I've been making YouTube videos on entrepreneurship and design. And one of my videos is on the difference between UI, user interface, and UX, user experience. But I didn't cover why is it an X? That doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, you'll have to figure that out and put a YouTube video up for us. When you're saying you're doing your side startup, so what's the difference? Are you developing your own software? Are you doing something for clients on the side? I was doing both. So I was developing some of my own software and I had a couple of programs in the photography space. And I was also had some clients that I was helping with their user interface and their design problems. It was easy to find those clients. I mean, did you have a passion for photography to be in this space, I guess, as your side business? I loved software. And so my passion is for technology. And so I love coding. I love solving design problems. Finding clients is a very different thing. And so that ended up exercising a new part of my brain, whether it was going online and searching for people who were searching for designers or searching for that type of work. And so it was definitely a learning process to learn about all these skills for business, both sales, marketing, customer acquisition that I really didn't know before I started. I guess, again, you're still in your early to mid 20s at this point, right? Yep. So what's your lifestyle like? It sounds like you're on a computer all day. If you're at work, 
doing UX UI stuff you're saying, and then it seems at home doing your own software company, making your own software, and then working on client software. Are you just doing this nonstop, like seven days a week, or what's our lifestyle like? Yeah, I mean, I tend to be wired as a night owl, so I tend to work late into the AM or early into the AM, however you put it. What time does that mean? I'm curious. Usually 2 a.m., 1 a.m. I would work during the day. I would go hang out with friends or go outside. I do love a bunch of outdoor sports, whether it's snowboarding or sailing or things like that. But then, yeah, I like to stay up at night and I'd be coding my own projects or designing interfaces or writing blog posts or creating videos. I enjoy making stuff. So for me, it doesn't really feel like work and I kind of disappear into the creative process. Your day job, how long did you have that before you decided to go full-time with your side business, Raise Labs there? I probably did, did that for eight to 10 months. And then I had enough traction with the Raise Labs business that I knew I had clients. I knew it was close to the number that I needed to kind of cover my monthly expenses. It wasn't quite there. So I knew I would continue to lose a little bit of money for a couple months. But I had enough savings that I could really make the jump into Raise Labs, be able to do that full time. And really, as soon as I did that, I was able to find more clients and kind of backfill the work that I needed to really be able to do it with confidence. And so the first year, let's just say your first year going full time, how much did you end up actually like making? It was peanuts. I mean, I actually looked a couple of years ago and it was maybe 20 grand, 30 grand. It was not a lot of money. It was literally just covering living expenses and food. I wasn't saving anything, but it was enough for me really to have my own thing. I would work out of a Starbucks or a Pete's Coffee. Wait, you're in Boston, right? Yep. So not Dunkin' Donuts? Dunkin' doesn't really have the sit-down atmosphere. I agree. I just know the Boston people love Dunkin' Donuts for Starbucks, right? Yeah, it's funny, like Starbucks used to be a sit down place, but Starbucks has moved to the get your coffee and get out as well. The new kind of coffee sit down place is Cafe Nero, like none of the other places want you to hang around. They just want you to get your expensive coffee and leave. But at the time, Starbucks was the come and sit down. Duncan's never been the come and sit down place. So I'd go and I'd get a coffee, get a muffin or something, and I'd work there. So I didn't have any office expenses, didn't have any overhead other than myself. And so it was not a lot of money at first, like I said, maybe 20, 30 grand the first year, but it allowed me to cover my rent. It allowed me to kind of make progress, build a little bit of reputation. And I think that's the key when starting a business. You don't really have a reputation. People don't know who you are. You don't have a brand. And so you have to build that with your clientele, with the people who you're doing work with. As you start to do that, you build a reputation. Those clients, A, they come back for more work and they're like, hey, you did a great job. Can you do this other thing? But then when their friends or their network ask them like, hey, who did your website or who helped you with the mobile app or who helped you do X, Y, Z, they start making referrals. And that's really when the business started to take off. And so you're working in these Starbucks. And again, I just wanted to reemphasize in case anyone hasn't been to Boston, it's ridiculous how many Dunkin' Donuts there are, right? I mean, it's like every block. <laughs> yeah, we have one every other block. Yeah, exactly. Every couple of blocks. It's ridiculous. And then when you're saying with the sit down thing, I agree with you. All of them do kick you out now because I've tried to do that, switch it up sometimes, get out of the house because I work from home. And then like Panera used to be a place that you could do that. And then you can't do that anymore because they only give you one megabyte speed, which is ridiculous. They obviously don't want you to be there if you're giving me one megabyte speed. So that first year, even though maybe you're saying 20 or 30K you end up making, do you think overall you're like happier than when you were at 
Microsoft because you had your own business and could do whatever you wanted? I think the first couple of years were, I mean, it's a lot of work and you definitely question whether you're making the right decision because, you know, I certainly could have either A, joined another startup or gone to work at uh, Facebook or Google like a lot of my friends did. And so you're not quite sure. It's not a lot of money. And so I think at the time it was definitely, am I doing the right thing? I'm not quite sure. But as you start to get traction, as you start to increase that reputation. And certainly for me, it was when I started to hire my first employees that I started to feel like, okay, I'm turning a corner. Like this is going in the way I wanted to. Well, thank you for admitting that. I was going to say, like, it seems a lot of people, even the first couple of years, if you're not making quite as much money as you want or whatever, it's just like, you do question yourself. So anyone who's in that position now, it's all right. I mean, could you just walk us through that? Like, so you could maybe help people who are in that mindset. Cause I mean, I even think about that with the podcast. Sometimes I'm like, uh, is this worth it? Am I doing it? Is it, <laughs> well, you know, like, why should I just go back to doing what I was doing? Cause I was making more money doing that. Like, just talk to that if you don't mind for a little bit. Yeah. I think if you're starting your own thing, you kind of have to understand why you're doing it. And I think if you're doing it for financial independence or, or that in the short term, that's probably not the best why. It's not going to give you the fire and the energy to fuel you long term. But if you really believe in the vision of your company, the things that you're doing, it's going to give you independence in terms of your schedule and how you do things. It's going to give you independence in terms of your values and what you choose to do. That's going to give you the fuel or energy to keep going. Like when I left Microsoft, I knew I would have a really hard time having a boss again, because if I ever got into the situation where we weren't arguing about right or wrong, we were arguing about values. And when you run your own business, you get to determine the values of the business. You get to determine the priority. And I think that's the thing that gave me energy. It was like, I get to decide. It's different because you're working on smaller problems as a startup. You're not working on a product that can be like, hey, 300 million people are going to go use this tomorrow. You're working on something where you're like, hey, maybe I can help 20 people or 50 people. And it's a different type of mindset. But if you're doing it for yourself, if you're doing it for the right reasons, then it'll give you that energy to last through those hardest years. And the first couple of years are definitely really tough because you're fighting all of those both internal obstacles of your own ego and your own direction of where you're going. Well, Greg, I believe. So hopefully that helps. <laughs> if you stop believing, then you're definitely screwed, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. So after the first year, again, not making much money, it seems like it goes like that for the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, it grew steadily. So it was maybe 2030 and then it was 4050. Then it's starting to feel a little more comfortable. Like I said, at a certain point, we had enough business that I couldn't do it all. And so I started to hire contractors. At the time, initially, the contractors were literally coming into my condo and working. It was kind of awkward. And I was like, okay, I'm graduated to like needing an office. And so I got my first office, which was maybe 20 by 20. It was a tiny little office, but it was enough to put a couple desks and a couple computers. And, you know, it was off to the races. Was that exciting? It was exciting. It was like, I remember getting the first office and figuring out the whole lease and how am I going to do this? And 
Actually, I'll tell a story. You know, I remember I had this tiny office and whenever you're at a certain stage of business, you're always thinking about the next stage. And I think that's natural. Like it's hard and I do encourage entrepreneurs to take a breath and be like, celebrate the progress that you have done. But I remember I was sitting in this tiny office and even back then I was like, I know this is a tiny office and I had my eye on the next office that would be bigger and better and greater and could actually accommodate a couple more employees and a couple more things that I wanted. And I remember these two, I think they were freshmen in college kids. They came to talk to me and they wanted advice on entrepreneurship. And they came to see my tiny little office and they looked at it and they're like, wow, this is amazing. You made it. And I was like, they left and I had to reflect on that because each step that you make, it's hard. You don't realize the progress that you have made. And when you get to that next step, you're always looking at, well, what's next after that? And I think it's important that you do make progress. Sometimes it happens slowly but it is important to stop and recognize them. That makes me reflect even to what you said, like in your first year, how many people would have had the balls from leaving Microsoft to start their own company? And even though you made probably way less doing your own company, like some of your people that you worked with might've been like, wow, look, he's made it. He can do what he wants when he wants, even if he makes less money. And I think that's true. You only see your own picture. You only see your own kind of, it's the grass is always greener. People are always looking at you and wow, wow, he's starting a company. Meanwhile, you're running the company. You're like, oh my God, what am I doing? And oftentimes like I would have imposter syndrome. Like what right do I have to do this? Do I really know what I'm doing? You're always kind of A, learning from your mistakes, figuring out what you need to go do, and then trying to jump to whatever that next level of business might be. When you signed that first office lease, I was curious, like how much runway did you have as far as in your bank account? I mean, is there a good way to think about it? I was just curious for you. Maybe other people are thinking the same thing. It wasn't a ton. Like I knew that I could cover my own expenses, my own salary. Plus at the time, I think I had one employee and one contractor. And so I was like, I know I have enough to pay myself, to pay the contractor and to pay rent for and it wasn't a ton, maybe three months, four months, but I had enough visibility into the cycles of when the clients come in and how long that takes to have some sense of like, I think I'll be okay. And again, at the time, I don't remember what the lease commitment was. It was probably a three-year lease with an extension, but it ends up being, I think at the time, maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars a month. And so I was like, I think I can pull it off. And as a CEO, you can always dial down your own salary, which I was able to do at the time because I knew how to live on 30K, 20K. So I was like, okay, if I need to dial it down, I can. You have kind of levers, but you're always I'll use the expression over your skis. You're like a little bit extended and you're like, oh my God, this is really hard. But then as soon as you make that jump, six months, eight months in, you're like, oh, this is comfortable. I always tell entrepreneurs that if you're completely comfortable, you've probably waited too long. You need to be a little bit uncomfortable about the decisions that you're making and the leaps that you're making, whether it's hiring or growth or other types of investment. If you're completely comfortable, man, you're probably going a little bit too slow and you should be taking calculated risks. Again, whether it's rent or hiring, it's not about the company type decision, but you always want to be a little bit ahead of where you feel comfortable. That allows you to grow yourself. Yeah. If you would have waited for five years of runway, that might've been a little too late, you're saying? Yeah. Or every <laughs> month that you wait is one month that you're not executing on the thing you actually want to. So again, you have to keep those balances in mind. Obviously, if things went terribly south and all of a sudden you don't have any clients, you don't have any work, 
then you have to make not fun decisions. Every CEO goes through a period where all of a sudden they overextended and they either need to downsize or they have to fire someone or have a series of layoffs or contract. And those are incredibly painful, but they're also learning process for entrepreneurship. We're probably about 2005 when you got your first lease. I just want to make sure the timeline we keep right. Yeah, thereabouts. It's probably 2004, 2005. We got our first lease, first couple employees, and we kind of grew progressively. This was, again, 2005 was pre-mobile. And so we were still building some of our own software products and selling them as shareware. We were trying to build some photo software applications that were a little more sophisticated. We were exploring venture financing for some of the ideas that we were building as well and learning about that space as well. But ultimately, like our kind of tipping point was when the iPhone was launched, we started to build apps. And that's really where we saw a lot of momentum. I keep hearing the Photoshop stuff and dealing with photos. So did you like develop Microsoft Paint? Were you that guy? <laughs> no. <laughs> I still use that, by the way. Yeah, Microsoft Paint was great. So at Microsoft, I worked on a photo feature called the Photo Printing Wizard. And so in XP, one of the things we found through research and talking to a lot of consumers was that people wanted to print their photos, unsurprisingly. And it was actually very difficult to print photos in Windows 95 because if you open them up in Paint, they would print the wrong sizes. If you open up in Word... They'd kind of print with all sorts of weird margins. And so we built a photo tool in XP. And after I left Microsoft, I had all sorts of ideas for other things you could do with photography because digital photography was just starting to blossom. And so I built a photo sharing app called Magic Gallery, which it was moderately successful for shareware. I think it sold maybe $500 to $1,000 a month, which at the time was definitely supplementing a lot of the income. And we explored whether shareware could be a more central part of the business. It ended up being really difficult to make money on desktop software. And that's why we ended up pivoting to some of the other stuff we ended up doing. I thought I was joking around about Microsoft Paint because I'm like, there has to be some photo thing where it seems like you're going along these lines because you had some past experience with it. And so again, back into your story, I guess 2006, 2007 is when you started developing these apps for your business. The iPhone was introduced, I think, 2008. We were at that time working mostly on websites for clients. So helping companies design websites and web applications. And when the App Store was announced, that's when we really said, like, let's try building a mobile application for a client. And first one we worked on, like I said, was RunKeeper. The founder CEO initially approached us about building a website and we pitched him to build a mobile app instead. And so that was the first mobile application that had GPS tracking on it. And so we kind of took a bet that the iPhone 3G would have a GPS chip. Prior iPhones didn't have a GPS chip, but we said if the next iPhone has a GPS chip, this could be the first GPS tracking running app to be in that space, beating Nike and beating a bunch of other companies to the punch. And the founder agreed he wanted to take the leap with us. And so we built that first app and that helped his company be incredibly successful. His company got acquired several years ago by ASICS and is still a very successful running fitness app. And that helped cement our reputation as an app developer as well. Did he give you a big thank you? Yes. I think everyone's been happy with mutual results. I mean, I'm not even a runner at all. And I think I've heard RunKeeper as an app and like, I think maybe even it was back then or I don't know, but I've definitely heard the name. 
even from a non-runner. Like if I know about it, then it's something. Yeah, it was, I think, in the top of the App Store charts for a long time and definitely helped cement our reputation in the early days of the App Store. And as I was saying earlier, like in the early days of any field or niche, you're really trying to build that reputation, build that recognizability of what you do and the value that you bring. And that definitely helped cement our reputation in terms of ability to build quality applications. So it still things sounds like everything's going, you're about seven to eight years into your company, everything's still going up and to the right? Yeah, and it was slow, right? I think when people say like, oh yeah, I built a company and sold it, people think it's a light switch and you flick it and oh, amazing. But it took a long time from, you know, I think I incorporated in 2003, 2001 and two was kind of a side hustle business. And then I started to get more serious about it, 2004, 2005, as we started to grow and get employees. But then we really didn't have that tipping point until the iPhone hit in 2008, 2009, where we really started to see inflection and we're growing significantly faster because more and more companies are coming to us and asking for our mobile app experience, mobile applications, that sort of thing. It's tough, isn't it? But that's to a podcast that goes to like 30,000 people. So it's just like, there's wow. so many people who listen and don't do anything. You know what I'm saying? I want to give you credit for what you're doing because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening, but I was curious how many people are paying. I mean, for me, my dad even said, Bren, why are you paying this guy? What What's he giving? I said, it's, I want him to keep going. That's why I'm paying, yeah. you know, and I do believe in pay it forward. It's not a lot of money. And, you know, I can do the math. Hey, nice meeting you. Hey, same here, Austin. Well, cool. Well, thanks for joining that call on Friday. No, no problem. Thanks to you for having an awesome podcast and asking a blunt question. So do you charge for this or how does it work? You just want to help the Patreon members or? I just want to help you. Free call. Okay. Wow. It's been a while maybe since I reemphasized it, which means probably one episode for anyone who's listening. But we've talked about basically five, six years of you working full time in about 15 minutes. So you got to envision that we, Greg already said he was a night owl. And I imagine even in his 20s, he was even more of a night owl. Like how many hours you actually put in every single day in those first five or six years for it to finally get to a somewhat tipping point or faster acceleration point, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of work. And that's why for anyone thinking about starting a company, you really have to be in it for the long haul. And you really have to be excited and passionate about the things that you're doing. Otherwise, you're just going to burn yourself out. So what point should we jump to in the next part of your story here? Probably growth and then pivot to why I sold and why, how that process went might be interesting. Because you actually sold in 2017? I sold in 2017, yeah. Okay. Over those 10 years, are there any other points? You said you had to fire people and whatnot. So I'm trying to see if there's any downturns because again, it sounds like even though you wanted to reemphasize, which I appreciate, it still was growth, but a super slow growth. But what's been the decline or the issues over the last 17 years of doing it? I'll kind of give you the next kind of bit would be like after we built some of the first mobile apps, we started to get more and more requests for building products. And that's really where we saw the growth phase of the company, where we would grow 50% year over year. It was just really rapid. We went from four people to eight people to 16 people to 30 people. And so every year we're just growing, we're blowing out our office, we're running out of space and needing to get a new lease and growing for additional space. And 
when we got to somewhere around 30 people, you're starting to learn new ways to run a business because the things that used to work in a 16 person company don't really work in a 25 person company. And so it's just learning how to put in some of the management structure, some of the operational bits to have the company be effective. I brought in some leadership from outside the company. And so I hired a COO to help me operationally. And he taught me a ton about how to run a business and how to run the financials and helped us get to the next stage. We ended up opening a California office, which was really exciting in Oakland. And again, that taught me a bunch about kind of both remote work and how to manage and deal with company that's operating on both coasts. Every step was a learning challenge and it was exciting as well. Like we were flying to all sorts of exciting clients and very well recognized brands and helping them think about their mobile application experience and their customers. And at that point, you're starting to see like, hey, when we launch an app, maybe a million or a couple million people will use that app. And so it's just very exciting to be working on that type of stuff. And then of course, having your brand, your company, the thing that you started associated with that. So it was just a lot of fun. As we grew to 50, 60 people, the business started to shift again. And again, each time you grow, you start to shift and learn new things. And so it started to be operationally challenging to maintain revenue consistently for long periods of time. And so this was an area probably for me of a lot of personal stress because every month you're doing a million dollars of business. And if you miss that million dollar mark, there's a lot of people depending on you. And so again, completely different animal in terms of operations, in terms of how do you run that business? How do you give yourself the predictability so that you can continue to grow without causing that undue stress? It sounds like things got stressful and that's eventually why you ended up selling. Yeah. So around 2016, things started to definitely to put a toll on me personally, just because we had a couple slow quarters, a couple bad months, and we had to do some downsizing. We had to do some layoffs and it's just incredibly hard. I mean, we got through that, but it was challenging for me. I was trying to figure out how to make the jump to the next size company. And so, like I said, we were 60, 70 people. And each time the company changes size and shape, you need to operationally change something about how you run it. As I started to think about what takes the company from 60 to call it 120, one of the things I started to realize as I was thinking about how to go from 60 people to 120 people was that we would need to fundamentally change how we thought about the business. It was very difficult to build a company that large that was solely focused on mobile. We really thought that we needed to diversify from mobile to being more of a full service design and development agency able to do both web, mobile, back end, and front end. And so we started to explore a couple things, both acquisitions. Could we acquire small web agencies to complement our skills? And we tried to do a couple of those acquisitions and they weren't particularly successful. I mean, they were okay, but they really didn't change our reputation. They didn't position us the way we wanted. And so we ultimately decided that we needed to, we weren't going to be able to acquire someone to compliment us in that way that we should explore being acquired to create that more of a full service product offering. You were saying that you had to get like to a million bucks a month and whatnot. I mean, I could understand why that could be stressful too, but with your business model, it seems like there was no reoccurring revenue that it just taken on clients. Was that it as well? Yeah. If you have reoccurring revenue, it's easier to predict 
just wondering how you actually end up making money if there's just do client services or anything else here. Yeah, it's primarily client services. And so, yeah, it's not a SaaS business. So the revenue isn't recurring in that someone subscribes and pays monthly. We did have enough business that you can predict on a percentage basis, you know, that 50 to 60% of your clients will renew year over year. And so you have some predictability in the business, but apart from that 60%, there's still a lot of variability in the business as well. And so a lot of that was causing me stress around 2016. So how about Greg personally? Did he ever get married and settle down? Yeah, so I got married. I have two beautiful daughters who are 8, 12. That's all good in that department. And obviously, as an entrepreneur, you have to kind of balance how much time you're spending on your company and making sure you're not completely forgetting about family time as well. And so trying to balance and keep those things in check is important. So yeah, you're obviously stressed out. So personally, just dealing with yourself, that's an issue. But I mean, like time-wise, was it still sucking up a lot of time? So you're like, hey, I've got a family. It seems like you've done well enough, at least financially or personally, that you're like, you know, that runs a point that I'm not going to keep working 60 hours, 70 hours, whatever hours a week I'd rather spend time with my family. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the challenge of entrepreneurship as well. Like I think entrepreneurs are very driven by work and I actually get a lot of energy from that. And so it is helpful to disconnect and try to balance, but it's definitely a challenge for entrepreneurs wired that way. I'll say I'm still a night owl. So that's still something that gives me energy to go create and kind of have that quiet time to think and create and write. But I think everyone's spending a lot more time with family these days. Not necessarily by choice, so, you know, because <laughs> they love them that much more. Maybe government has forced them, but yeah, hopefully, you know, makes everyone realize like it's not all work all the time. It's good to me. I always find when things like this happen in life or whatnot, it helps you reevaluate what you're doing and why you're doing it. And if you want to keep doing it. It's true. Absolutely. We end up selling the business and you totally get out or can walk us through the transition of like how that worked out for you. Yeah. So we started looking for a potential acquirer around 2016. And that entire process took a little over a year. And so we ended up finding a company called RightPoint that acquired us. They were also in the service agency space. A lot of the people I hired are still at RightPoint. And so if listeners are looking for a design agency, they can definitely go check them out. But we took a long time looking for a company that shared our vision and values. The CEO of RightPoint was aligned with me in terms of some of the things that were important. RightPoint, can you just spell it? I want to make sure that everyone looks for the right people. Sure. It's R-I-G-H-T point. Okay, cool. I had to make sure it wasn't like Rite Aid, you know how it's R-I-T-E or anything like that. So yeah, I ended up being pretty mentally aligned with the CEO in terms of his vision of the company. And I thought it would be a good steward, the vision and values and people of Ray's Labs. And so we ended up doing that transition. That was end of 2017. And so I ended up staying on with the firm as the head of innovation for about two years. And so it allowed me personally to kind of de-stress from the operational side of the business and kind of worrying about payroll and worrying about kind of operations and HR and kind of all the other things that go into running a business. And some of the things that I used to think about when I started the business, which were innovation and technology and how can you really change lives through the technology that we build. Now that you've got out, are you set for life? Yeah, financially, I'm set for life, which is great. Doesn't mean you want to be done with life. <laughs> no, it, it's funny. I think it causes you to reflect on where you want to spend your time. I've never been particularly financially motivated, meaning that like I don't need a lot. 
I end up spending a lot of time building software and designing things. You know, the things I like to do outdoors, whether it's sailing or snowboarding, they're not exorbitantly expensive. I don't intend to buy a yacht or anything of that nature. And so it's like, you don't need a lot to be happy. And so now I'm kind of thinking about, well, how do I give back, whether it's through entrepreneurship or angel investing and help others build impactful software. So you prefer snowboarding over skiing? I was one of the very first snowboarders, you know, on the mountain. I had a old Craig Kelly, Burton, people would come up to me and say, what the heck is that thing? And I just loved it. I believe you. To me, it's so much harder than skiing. And I mean, I don't know if it took you or maybe you're just great at it right at the first time, but I know when I tried doing it. It's just different. So I taught both my daughters to snowboard. And, and the key about snowboarding is that on skis, like you can strap on a pair of skis and you're an instant beginner, right? Like they'll teach you how to do pizza slices and French fries. And like you can go down a, a basic mountain on skis. On a snowboard, you strap into a snowboard and you're not even a beginner. Like you're nothing for like three days. Like you're just on the ground. But as soon as you kind of get that, you instantly go from like you're on the ground and you're nothing to you very quickly become an intermediate. Whereas on skis, even though you're a beginner, it takes you years to become intermediate and even more years to become advanced. So just very different learning curves, but love the sport. It's a blast to get outside and harp some runs. That's some inspiration for future snowboarders. So we cover <laughs> it all on this podcast. It's not just business, Greg. That's right. Well, I'm sure you could draw an analogy on, actually, here's the analogy to snowboarding. Like when you're starting a business, you're on the ground. Like you're not making any progress and it takes a couple of years to get going. But once you get going, once you find that inflection point, you can really become expert fast. Perfect. Well, I'm glad you came up with the analogy. I was trying. I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> but no, it makes perfect sense, right? On the snowboard, like I said, if y'all haven't done it before, you're going to bust your ass. I'm glad you said three days because I try it for a day and I could kind of do it. And I'm like, it's just so much easier to ski. I'm just going to go back to doing that. I mean, I'm in Florida, so I don't have a lot of slopes around here. It's hard to get to <laughs> yeah. the slopes, exactly. So I only usually have a couple of days when I go somewhere to ski, you know? So thank you for here for sharing the story. I guess if people wanted to follow you on like what your plans are here now, do you have the vision for it? I know you said you're experimenting with YouTube or what else is up? Right now, people can find me on Twitter at GRays. I'm starting to make YouTube videos to explore a new platform for content. Like when I first started my business, I spent a lot of time blogging, but blogging it seems to be kind of dead because you can't follow people easily on blogs anymore. And so I'm learning about YouTube as a way to reach people interested in entrepreneurship, design and engineering, and starting to think about what my next business might be. Again, still exploring a broad set of different ideas and ways to go do that, but would love to connect with folks interested in those types of things and, and chat with them about their ideas. Is it best to do it via Twitter or is there somewhere else that maybe they could email you to? Uh, yeah, Twitter is usually the best way. I also have a website, gregrays.com. And so they can find me on there. There's a contact form if they want to reach out. And blogs are dead because they don't know how to read anymore. It seems like, right? Well, I think it's discovery. Google is the main discovery engine for so many things. And it used to be that you could subscribe to blogs with RSS and RSS readers. And all of that went away in the last 10 years. And so if you love a blog, it's really hard to kind of stay connected with it. Yeah, makes perfect sense. I know exactly what you're saying where they had the RSS reader. Not that I ever really subscribed to blogs via that route, but yeah, you'd have to remember to go to Greg's website every day now, right? If you really wanted to read a blog. Yeah, no one's going to do that. And so it's a whole new kind of paradigm shift for content creators. 
And I guess for you, I think it's important for everyone to understand too. I mean, it seems like you've had a successful business, obviously, and like you're trying to explore and figure out what you want to do next. And it's worth taking the time. It's like starting a business, like making sure you want to do it and maybe messing around with a couple of different things before you go guns a blazing to do your very next thing. Is that what you kind of suggest? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's no shortage of ideas. Like I see lots of entrepreneurs who come to me and they're like, oh, I have this great idea, but they haven't really a put the time to think through the pros and cons of the ideas. They haven't evaluated against other ideas and they haven't figured out how they might execute it in a way that would separate them from others. And I think it's important to take the time to really get deep into those ideas, really understand them. Like some ideas, and I have a running list, I have a spreadsheet of a bunch of ideas that I think could be interesting for companies. I think I'm up to 30 something ideas. And it's the ones that I've come back to over and over again that I'm like, oh, okay, maybe there's something really there, but there's another 25, 30 that I don't come back to. And so it's the ones that really call it kind of a mental itch that you have to scratch. They keep coming back. Okay, there's something there. And those ideas, I keep talking about them with folks. And so if I think something's a good idea, I'll kind of vet it with a bunch of other smart people who I know and be like, what am I missing? Why is this a bad idea? What would you do different? Like, And to try to really suss out whether it's just an idea or whether it could be a great business. Well, I look forward to vetting these ideas with you in a couple <laughs> minutes. So, Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Greg, for joining us. And again, any last words of wisdom, I guess, before we get off here? No, I think if you're an entrepreneur and looking to get started or looking to start a business, you know, you just have to get over your fear, get into the mindset of entrepreneurship, reduce the risk of failing, start to make things. Well, thanks again for joining us. Awesome. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Guess what? We've got over 25 special Patreon episodes ready for you to listen to right this very second. All you have to do is become a member and you'll unlock this magical vault of knowledge. Plus, by becoming a member, you'll be able to join our group calls with past guests and ask your questions directly to them. Another plus by becoming a member? Well, you'll help us keep coming out with podcast episodes on this very feed. Because without sponsors... It ain't financially viable for my team and me to keep producing these episodes for you. So help us keep this train moving forward by becoming a Patreon member today. Just visit the link in your episode description below or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. It's tough, isn't it? But that's to a podcast that goes to like 30,000 people. So it's just like, there's wow. so many people who listen and don't do anything. You know what I'm saying? I want to give you credit for what you're doing because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening. But I was curious how many people are paying. I mean, for me, my dad even said, Bren, why are you paying this guy? What What's he giving? I said, it's. I want him to keep going. That's why I'm paying, yeah. you know, and I do believe in pay it forward. It's not a lot of money. And, you know, I can do the math.